We'll start with a little survey. So I'm going to ask you to participate by raising your hands. How many of you have been to Litchfield Cathedral? Almost a full house there, very good. Warwick Castle. Okay. Chatsworth. Well traveled. Uh, what about Blenheim Palace? Yeah, still a few. Buckingham Palace. Okay, how many of you then are finally are members of the National Trust? Okay. So most of us have at least some experience and some interest in visiting impressive buildings. Now maybe the case is that you're actually more interested in the gardens or the cafe maybe. But here in England we have plenty of opportunities to walk around and admire grand, ornate architecture. Some of it very old. And what we're going to do this morning is walk around and admire a very, very old building. We're going to look at a temple that was built 3,000 years ago. It was built by King Solomon. And First Kings devotes three whole chapters to it. We're given enough detail to get a pretty good picture of this place. But before we do that, we need a reason to look at the temple. Because if we don't have a reason, it is just going to seem tedious to us. So here are two reasons for paying attention to the temple. Number one, the writer of Kings thought the temple was very significant. When we started this series, we said that the writer is covering about 400 years of history in 64 pages in my Bible at least. That means lots and lots of detail has been left out. The writer has boiled it down to what he believes are the most significant things from those 400 years. So when we find him using four of his 64 pages to give us minute details about a fairly small building, that tells us the temple is very significant to the writer of Kings. And then if we go on and read the rest of the Bible, we discover the temple is very significant to the whole storyline of the Bible. That's our second reason for paying attention to these chapters. For the writer of Kings and for the other writers of Scripture, Solomon's temple was not just another old building. It has great significance. It is worth our time and attention. So with that introduction, let's look at 1 Kings chapters 5 to 7. And if you haven't found it already, it's page 340 in the church Bibles or in the larger print 523. So we have three chapters, and I'm not going to read all of this. That's what you're waiting to hear, right? I'm going to read some of it, and in between the bits that we don't read, I'll just summarize briefly what's included in those verses. So we're going to start at 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read through to chapter 6, verse 1. When Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent his envoys to Solomon, because he had always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. 
You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David, when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. So give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My man will work with yours, and I will pay you for your man whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, I have received the message you sent me and will do all you want in providing the cedar and juniper logs. My man will haul them down from Lebanon to the Mediterranean Sea and I will float them as rafts by sea to the place you specify. There I will separate them, and you can take them away. And you are to grant my wish by providing food for my royal household. In this way, Hiram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedar and juniper logs he wanted. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, in addition to 70,000 baths of pressed olive oil, Solomon continued to do this for Hiram year after year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom, just as he had promised him. There were peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month, so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workers. At the king's command, they removed from the quarry large blocks of high-grade stone to provide a foundation of dressed stone for the temple. The craftsmen of Solomon and Hiram and workers from Byblos cut and prepared the timber and stone for the building of the temple. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. Then verses 2 to 10 give us the measurements of the temple, and we're going to pick up again down in verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards paneling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling and covered the floor of the temple in planks of juniper. He partitioned off 
Twenty cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The main hall in front of this room was forty cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar. No stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the ark of the covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. And he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold. And he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. For the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the first cherub was five cubits long, and the other wing five cubits. Ten cubits from wingtip to wingtip. The second cherub also measured ten cubits, but the two cherubim were identical in size and shape. The height of each cherub was ten cubits. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple with their wings spread out. The wing of one cherub touched one wall, while the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. On the walls all around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. Then move down to verse 37. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. And verses 2 to 12 describe the various palace buildings. And we pick up again in chapter 7, verse 13. King Solomon sent to Tyre and brought Huram whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali and whose father was from Tyre and a skilled craftsman in bronze. Huram was filled with wisdom, with understanding and with knowledge to to do all kinds of bronze work. He came to King Solomon and did all the work assigned to him. And the next verses describe all of Huram's work in bronze and all its details. And finally, we pick up down in verse 48 of chapter 7. Solomon made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple. The golden altar, the golden table, which was the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right and five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, the gold floral work, and lamps and tongs, the pure gold dishes, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes and censers, 
and the gold sockets for the doors of the innermost room, the most holy place, and also for the doors of the main hall of the temple. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. This is God's word. Let's go back and try to grasp the significance of all this. The passage we ended with last week told us that from all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And one of those kings of the world is Hiram, king of Tyre. If you look at a map, which I know is too small for you to make out the details, but we can get the relative settings of things. Here's Israel's capital in Jerusalem, and here is Tyre. So it's on the coast further north. Hiram had been a friend of Solomon's father, David. And he hopes to continue that friendship with Solomon. And that's very convenient for Solomon because he knows Hiram can help with this big project that he has in mind. Look again at the message Solomon sends back to Hiram when he gets greetings from Tyre. Picking up in chapter 5, verse 3. Solomon says to Hiram, You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build a temple for my name. So, give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My man will work with yours. And I will pay you for your man whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. That's another way of referring to the people of Tyre. So Solomon not only tells Hiram about his plan to build a temple here, He also explains in this message the foundation of the temple. That foundation is the promises of God. The background to this is that David had wanted to build a temple. But God said, no, David, that job is not for you. After you're gone, one of your offspring, literally one of your seed, they will build my temple. That message from God is recorded in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Now obviously Solomon knew about that. So this great building project he's about to begin is not his own idea. He hasn't dreamt this up. This is something God promised. And so Solomon begins this work on the strength of God's promise. It's something God has given him to do. And Solomon explains that in verse 5. He's doing this as the Lord told my father David. Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build a temple for my name. Why is this important? 
It's important because God doesn't do things that are pointless. Everything he does has a purpose. That's as true of the temple as it is of everything else. Somehow, this building we're going to hear about is significant not just for the Israelites 3,000 years ago. It's significant for the world. God's plans involve the world. And the temple has a part to play in that. And Hiram, king of Tyre, has a part to play in building the temple. He has the best wood and he has the best craftsmen. Solomon is going to pay well for the use of that wood and those craftsmen. We're told in chapter 5 that there are thousands of Israelites involved in building the temple. And there are thousands of men from Tyre working alongside them. We're told about those from Tyre who felled the trees and then helped to float them down the coast. That was the easiest way to transport them to Jerusalem. Further down, we hear about workers from Tyre who helped to quarry and to dress the huge stones that were used in the temple. And later in chapter 7, we hear about a man called Huram, a skilled craftsman in bronze. He comes down to Jerusalem and he works on the interior of the temple. It's pretty clear this temple building project is definitely a joint effort between Israel and Tyre. And that partnership connects the temple to another of God's promises. Way back long before Israel had a king, long before Israel even existed as a nation, God spoke to a man called Abraham. And he said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That promise is key to the whole storyline of the Bible. From Abraham eventually the nation of Israel did come. And here a foreign king who is a friend of Israel is being blessed through Israel. The people of Tyre are helping to build the temple of the living God. Now Solomon may not have had that promise to Abraham in his mind. We know he had the promise to David in mind. But involving Hiram, that might just have seemed like the obvious thing to do. Because of the materials and the expertise that were available up in Tyre. But whether or not Solomon had God's promises to Abraham in mind, the writer of Kings certainly did. In the previous chapter, he made several references to those promises. Solomon's temple had more significance than Solomon himself probably realized. The writer of Kings can see more than Solomon could. This temple is not just for Israel. Israel's God is not just for Israel. He's the God who blesses all peoples on earth through Israel. 
Before we leave chapter 5, down in verse 17, we're told the foundation of this temple was made of large blocks of stone. You can see why this building project needed thousands and thousands of workers. Think of Stonehenge. That was one of the uh, ancient sites I didn't ask you about. But if you've been there, if you've seen the pictures, and if you've heard about the task it was to transport all those stones from wheels without any machines, that gives some idea of the work that went into getting these big stones to Jerusalem. So there is a foundation of stones, but this chapter is mainly concerned not with the foundation of big stones. It's telling us the true foundation of this temple is the promises of God. God's temple is God's idea. It has a part to play in his promise to bless the world. The beginning of chapter 6 tells us more. It shows us the significance of the temple. It's a place of permanent rest. Look again at chapter 6, verse 1. In the 400th and 80th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. A moment ago I said the promise to Abraham was key to the Bible's storyline. And one of the key events in the Bible's storyline is the exodus from Egypt. God raised up Moses to lead his people out of slavery. That is an event the Bible refers to again and again and again, even in the New Testament. But the Exodus wasn't the end of the story. In fact, it was just a first step. God had promised the people not just deliverance, he had promised them rest, a land of their own, a place where they could all be at peace. And that rest was a long time coming. After the exodus, they wandered around the desert for 40 years. Then a new leader called Joshua led them into Canaan, a land God had promised them. But even then, rest was a long time coming. The Israelites had some great victories at first, but their enemies didn't go away easily. In fact, when David came along hundreds of years after Joshua, Israel still didn't have rest from all her enemies. David's reign was a time of war. But now, at last, there is rest. Solomon's reign is a time of peace. And the temple is a sign of this new peace. For 480 years, Israel has been worshipping God in a tent called the tabernacle. After the exodus, they have been a restless people. Isn't that what a tent means? Nothing is settled. It's all provisional when you're living in a tent. Who knows if you're going to be staying where you are. But now finally, they can build because they're here to stay. And the description of the temple given in chapter 6 verses 2 to 10 underlines that for us, if we were to read it. It's all about stone walls. This building is solid. 
It's fixed. The message is, we're not moving on anymore. This is the place. This is where we rest. Now what Solomon did not know, what none of the Israelites knew at this point, was that in 400 years, this temple would be gone. This sign of permanent rest would be burned down by new enemies of Israel. And the Israelites themselves would be dragged from rest into exile. Restless again. Why? How could something so solid and so reassuring be allowed to fail? How could God allow it? Well, we're given the answer in the rest of chapter 6. We're shown the essence of the temple. The essence of the temple is God's presence. Here's a model of the temple with the big altar there in the courtyard, the bottom right. And here, which is of more interest to us, is the inside of the temple. It's an artist's drawing. And as we look at the inside, and if we can remember the description of the inside that we read earlier, the thing that stands out there more than anything else is the luxury of it. The opulence. The whole inside is first of all lined with cedar wood. The wood is carved in elaborate, intricate designs. Angels, palm trees, flowers. And then all of it is overlaid with pure gold. Even the floors. So we have to ask, what is the reason for all that luxury and splendor? After all, nobody but the priests would ever see all of this. The wall at the side has been cut away in that drawing, but no one else could see what we're seeing there on the screen. The luxury of the temple was not like the crown jewels down in London. It wasn't on display for the public to see. But there is still a good reason for all this opulence and luxury. This is God's house. It doesn't matter whether human eyes ever see it. This is a place of splendor because it's for the maker and king of the universe. That is why only the best will do. At one end of the temple, there's an ark circled there. A wooden box covered in gold. And it was divided off from the rest of the temple, although again, you can't see that divider in the picture. The ark is described in the Bible as God's footstool. So it's not as if this building contained and restricted God. It didn't close him inside four walls. Solomon himself is going to say that at the dedication of the temple later. But still, God was there. That's why only the priests could go in. Anybody else would be destroyed in God's presence. So all of this beauty and luxury is entirely appropriate. God is here. 
But there is a flip side to this truth. Because without God's presence, the temple is just a fancy building. And plenty of other nations had fancy buildings just like this one. It is not the gold that makes Israel's temple unique and great. God's presence makes it unique and great. And God himself makes that clear if you look down again to chapter 6, verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. God says, my presence among the people is not automatic. It depends on obedience. And what we need to know is, when God says to Solomon, if you follow my decrees, the you is singular. God is not saying, if Israel is faithful, then I'll live among them. He's saying, if you, the king, are faithful, I'll live among the people. God's presence depends on the faithfulness of the king. A few moments ago we asked the question, how could God allow this place to be destroyed? It was such a significant moment that Israel finally had this place of rest. How they could finally swap their worship tent for a worship temple. How could God ever let it be taken away? Well, now we have the answer. Without God's presence, it's just a building. Without a king who's faithful to God, there will be no presence of God. And as we read on through First and Second Kings, we discover Israel's kings were not faithful. Some were more unfaithful than others, but for 400 years, Israel waited in vain for the faithful king God was looking for. And finally, the prophet Ezekiel describes God's presence departing from the temple, abandoning it. Without a faithful king, God would not be present in the temple. And without God's presence, there could be no permanent rest. And having shown that in Israel's history, God had prepared the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the faithful king. God the Father announced that publicly at Jesus' baptism. God said, with him I am well pleased. Jesus is the faithful seed of David. He is the son from David's line who is building the ultimate temple of God. It's a temple that will last forever. And it's built not with stones and cedar and gold. The New Testament tells us Jesus' temple is built with living stones. Men, women, and children who belong to Jesus. 
The New Testament describes it like this. Speaking to Jesus' followers. In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. The people this is written to, some of them are Jewish by birth, and some of them aren't. They're Gentiles. But together, the New Testament says, they are becoming a living temple of God. This is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. To bless all peoples on earth. This is the place of truly permanent rest. This is the temple God will never leave. The reason he will never leave is because the builder of this temple is God's son. He is the one who always pleases God. Who is always faithful to God. So Solomon's temple must have been an amazing thing. But it was only a signpost in the end. Jesus is building the reality. In him, we find God. As part of his temple, we find true rest for our souls. We receive God's Holy Spirit living in us. We have direct access to God's presence in prayer. And in the future, Jesus will welcome us into the full splendor of God's presence. Splendor that Solomon's temple could never even come close to for all of its gold. The temple is important in the Bible because it points us to Jesus, the faithful king and the true temple builder. And that leads us finally then to think about the challenge of the temple. Worship matters most. The last verse of chapter 6 told told us that Solomon's temple took seven years to build. Then chapter 7 begins with this. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. Then verses 2 to 12 give details about the construction of the palace. What is the significance of this? Well, some people have noticed it took Solomon almost twice as long to build his palace. Seven years for the temple, 13 years for the palace. And so they've wondered, is this making a statement about Solomon's priorities? Are we being told here that he cared more about his palace than about God's temple? So some people have interpreted it. But I'm confident we're being told the exact opposite of that. We're being told Solomon's priority is the temple. Here's why I say that. If we read on in verse uh, chapter 7, we'd notice that Solomon's palace is actually a complex of separate buildings. It's not just one 
house for Solomon. Most of them are public buildings, like the Hall of Justice, the courthouse. Solomon's own living quarters were just a small part of the temple complex or the palace complex. And so it's no surprise all of that took longer to build than the temple did. The temple was smaller than the palace. Not because it was less important, but because it wasn't built for lots and lots of people to use. It wasn't a public building. Solomon could not avoid spending more time constructing the totality of those other buildings. What is significant here is that Solomon built the temple first. It had priority over anything else that needed to be built. And he made the temple more opulent than any of the other buildings. They were not inlaid with gold. And when the construction of the palace is described, it's mentioned very briefly here. Very little detail. We've just had two whole chapters devoted to the temple, 56 verses. Now we have 12 verses devoted to the palace. Then we go back to hearing about the inside of the temple for another 39 verses. We're supposed to notice The description of the palace is squeezed in here, almost like an afterthought. As if to say, oh yes, and while we're at it, there were other buildings too, but let's keep focusing on the temple. So the message here is that the temple of God matters more than anything else in Solomon's kingdom. He put more planning and preparation into it. He used more expensive materials. And he took more care over it. The rest of chapter 7 deals with the intricate craftsmanship of the temple furnishings. Even down to the gold shovels that were made. There's nothing like that about the palace. So although the temple is smaller in size, the other buildings were very much a lesser priority than the temple. They were needed if Solomon was to rule Israel, but the temple had first priority. Before Solomon built his own house, he built God's. Before he put his own throne in place, he put God's in place. And by doing that, Solomon was sending a message. I rule Israel under God. His throne is higher than mine. His judgment is above mine. His rule overshadows mine. He is the king of kings. Or to put it another way, the message here is that worship matters most. Matters more than economics, more than education, more than the rule of law. All of those things are important. That's why Solomon built the palace complex. He wanted to get all those things right. But worship matters more than all those things. From the Bible's perspective, this is the model for all leadership. Worship matters most. 
And the leader who cares about leading well should know that putting worship first can only improve his leadership. In fact, whether you and I are leaders or not, whatever our responsibilities are, putting worship first is not going to make us worse parents or worse children or students or employees or citizens. It will make us better. When you and I live with the conviction that worship matters most, then we have our priorities right. And we'll be more effective in everything else that we do. That was certainly true in Solomon's case. For as long as Solomon lived with the knowledge he was under a higher throne and that he answered to a higher authority, Solomon ruled wisely and he ruled well. It was when he forgot the higher throne. Then his reign began to do Israel harm instead of good. So the challenge for you and me is, are we living with this conviction that worship matters most? And I don't mean worship songs. I mean, do our lives show that God is what's worth the most to us. That is what worship is. It's acknowledging the worth of something or someone. We would all say, I'm sure, God is worth more than anything to us. But the challenge is, do our lives show that? If someone looked at my life for a few weeks, they looked at your life for a few weeks, what would they say based on the evidence? What is worth the most to us? People looked at our lives. Solomon's building priorities showed what God was worth to him. The palace needed to be built, but the temple had priority. The palace needed a lot of attention, but the temple captured Solomon's enthusiasm. He ruled Israel in the shadow of the temple. He ruled conscious of the higher authority that dwelt in the temple. And as you and I apply that to ourselves, the point here is not that we should do shoddy work or neglect our families. The challenge is what has captured our enthusiasm in life. Whatever it is we're doing, are we doing it for the one who matters more than anything else to us? When we work hard, are we working hard for God's sake? Or for our own sake? Do we care for our families? Ultimately, for God's sake. That will make a difference in how we care for our family. We could ask, are the things that we do as a church done for the love of God? Or for some other reason? Whatever position or responsibilities we have in life, are we conscious that we're under a higher authority? One who is worthy of 
first place and first priority in our lives. As we leave here today, let's go with that challenge. And let's also go with thankfulness. Because we have a God who keeps his promises. He promised that a son of David would build him a temple. And Jesus Christ is keeping that promise. If we belong to Jesus, we're part of the temple he's building. We are being made glorious. Because we are the temple of a glorious God. So as stones in God's temple, let's worship him with our whole lives. Let's worship him with the things we do in public and in private. The things that everybody sees, let's do those for God. And the things that only God sees, let's do those for him as well. Our last song is a prayer. It says, Fill all my life, O Lord my God, in every part with praise. 